Hello, and welcome to the Collapse Podcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today, we are going to be talking about Polaroid Part 2. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to discuss today. So, the previous episode, we kind of just discussed the beginnings of Polaroid, how it got started, polarizing film, how Lang kind of did the whole goldfish spiel to uh, sell to the pol- uh, the sunglass executives. Continued that thought process. They were able to sell some film to Kodak and, you know, that famous story with his daughter walking in the park, which is very convenient, asking why she can't see the picture immediately after he takes it. That's where he gets his famous idea to make an instant camera. They develop that and that in, what, 30 seconds brings us up to where we are here. We are going to start by the reveal of his first camera called the Lamp Camera. Then we're kind of going to talk about the company in general and kind of different aspects of it, the development of color pictures. Then we're going to talk about another camera model that kind of is another big hit, the Swinger. Then we're going to talk about, you guessed it, another big camera model, the SX70. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about the failure of the Polavision. And then we're going to end briefly talk, uh, setting us up for Polaroid's big day in court. Well, day or 14 years. Either one. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about before we get started is there are really two entire sides to Polaroid. You have the side that we're going to talk about, which is the hardware and the camera and the business. And you have the other side, which is art. Lots and lots of artistic photos have been taken. Lots of things have been done to the photos to create artistic effects. And there's a whole other side to Polaroid that we are really not going to talk about. If you are interested, there are books out there, and the one that uh, I read that talked a lot about that arts see side of things is Instant. It's an excellent book. I would highly recommend it if you're interested more in Polaroid. Okay, so let's talk about cameras, and let's talk about film. What made the land camera so revolutionary? We think of pictures as already instant. You and I grew up in an era where you press a button and you can take you know, hundreds of pictures in seconds, you know, as it does the little time span thing. That was not the case when this land camera was introduced. I'm going to just tell you the basic steps of how you would get a picture before his invention came out. Okay. This is if you own a darkroom. Okay. You obviously get your materials. You open up the film of cassettes. You can get the film. If you can see the film, If you can see anything, the room is too light. There's too much light in the room. Too bright. When it is a dark room, it is completely pitch black. So you better set up everything and know exactly where everything is and know how to open up everything completely blind. That's step two. Step three, you have to cut off the film off the cassette with scissors. You have to load the film onto a reel. Then you have to place that reel in a film tank. Then you have to create a developer mixture so the film will develop. Then you have to measure the temperature of the mixture because that determines how long it will take to develop. Then you have to pour this mixture into the film tank. Then you have to agitate the film. Then after that elapsed time, you have to fill the tank with something called a stop bath. Otherwise, the picture will continue to develop until there's nothing left. Then you have to fill the tank with a fixer. Otherwise, if it's exposed to light, it'll be damaged. And what happens when film is exposed to light? Why do you need to protect it from sunlight? Because... Film is made of silver 
halides, which when it's exposed to sunlight, it decomposes to silver and chlorine gas. And the white color silver chloride turns into kind of a gray white color and it kind of darkens areas of the film. So don't want that. Then after you put the fixer on, you have to rinse and soak the film, which is kind of like that famous, you know, it's like if you see in movies, the dark room, you kind of seem like soaking in there and you have to hang mm. them, let them dry. Then after the dry, you remove the streaks with a cleaner <clears throat> and then you have your film. There you go. So what are we like painting a car here? Like That's what it sounds smokes. like. It is an involved <laughs> process, which is why dark rooms were a business. It was complicated and difficult, not something everybody can do or has the facilities for. Land camera. Here we go. Before we even reveal it, I'm just going to tell you the steps. Press a button. Use the little crank to take out the picture. It takes about 60 seconds to develop. And then you peel off the film and you have your picture. Revolutionary. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so let's talk about the reveal. Land knew that this was a revolution idea, but he has to convince the public in general that it's revolutionary. He was well aware that this was going to win over engineers and scientists. But that doesn't sell anything. You need to win over people that are going to buy the camera. So, what does he do? He goes up on stage, he pulls out his land camera, he takes a picture of himself, and 60 seconds later, and this is one of the most famous pictures of we're taken with the Polaroid picture is himself peeling off the film. The room was stunned. The t photographers there didn't even believe what had happened. <laughs> <laughs> they said something. It was magic. And of course, you know, they, they just repeat, you have to do it again. It, this can't be real. Just do it again. <laughs> there was a, a quote from the New York Times that said, you know, there's nothing like this in the history of photography. Uh, it was also said, that it was compared to using a horse messenger to carry messages one day, and the next day you get a telephone. I try to think about how to relate this to our day and age and something that we went through. And, uh, I have two examples that came to mind. One is in honor of Steve Jobs. I think he, or he loved Edwin Land, and he would be honored to have continued his legacy. And I think he did that. And I think he did that with the iPod. I remember as a kid having my CD player on the bus with my rack of cds next to me flipping through and it would take 10 minutes to get through a song because it skipped and when the ipod came out and i saw that kid down the on the other seat next to me that had it that could carry a thousand songs and had a screen and easily select them you don't have to skip through you know 15 songs to get to the one you want i thought that was incredible i yeah i remember actually i think you introduced me to the ipod because i think we were on like a, a band trip or something and you pulled out i think it was the sh either the shuffle or the nano the tiny one with just the dial and i was like oh my god what is that and you're like oh yeah. it's got all my my songs on it <laughs> yeah i definitely couldn't afford a real ipod so i got the shuffle <laughs> i think it allowed songs i still just skip through but yes far superior to the cd the other example was going from MapQuest to the gps I have a few stories of completely getting turned around because I don't know how far, you know, 78.6 miles is to make the turn and uh, completely missing that turn, that GPS. Though it had its drawbacks, as the land camera did, as we'll talk about in just a second, you know, the GPS, you have to like type in the state 
because if you don't type in the state, you'll get the wrong address, and you mm-hmm. know, it took forever to get the address. But once it was known, it was pretty great. The land camera also had some drawbacks. I'm going to read a little uh, quote from the book Instant uh, by Christopher Bonanos here. Uh, here's the quote. Between two sheets, at one end of the picture lay one of the pol- the best Polaroid invention, the pod. Relative to its importance, it looked like nothing special. It was a slim foil packet, as wide as the picture, containing perhaps about an ounce of thick chemical reagent, which was referred to as goo. Once the multi-layer paper came out of the camera, it ran between these two steel rollers, which burst the pod and spread its contents smoothly between the film and paper. The goo stood in for a darkroom bath of wet chemistry, and there was just enough of it that the print came out nearly dry. It took a lot of effort to get the pod right. It had to break open and spread its contents the same way every single time, which meant that it had to be precisely filled and sealed. And one of the drawbacks, and that was the end of the quote, one of the drawbacks of this was that the pictures kind of came out brownish. Mm. So it was not the same as the current technology. It was a little bit worse. However, you had that immediately. And you could tell if you had a good photograph or not immediately as well. That's one of the issues at this point in time was you could take pictures in an event like this one, and then you wouldn't know if they were good pictures or not until a few days later, in which case if they were bad, that was it. Yeah. So pictures. what year again was this? 1948. Okay. Yeah. I have seen a lot of those brownish colored Polaroids from uh, – I did some work with Korean War veterans and they showed me some of their pics, you know, from like 1950, 1951. Oh, okay. And many of them, you know, were that – one of them was the guy with the Polaroid and he took all the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> that would make sense. Yeah. It, you know, the the goo itself could be kind of caustic and probably wasn't all that safe to handle, so you wanted to be careful how you ended the picture. But despite these drawbacks, Land and his team thought it would sell. It cost $90, which is about $1,000 today. They wow. thought it would sell. They didn't really know how well. When you're having a national launch of something, you would want to have at least a, a decent idea of how much you would sell. They had 57 cameras. That was it. That's it. To sell. They had a production problem. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I would guess essentially so. We're just building these in their lab, essentially. What their plan was, and this was not a bad plan at all. We have 57 Polaroid cameras. We don't know how it's going to sell. Let's put it in stores. We expect it to take about a month or two to sell these 57. It's a new product. It's expensive. Let's gauge how much demand there is, and then we will just meet that demand. I think that's fair. It sold out in the first day. So they had a huge demand and not enough supply. So they were looking around trying to find a way to produce the amount of cameras to meet this demand. There aren't really that many uh, companies that are able to do this, but they did find one, Kodak. Now, they had the ability to make these small parts in large quantities to meet the demand that Polar was having. Now, why would Kodak arrival be interested in helping Polaroid. It really comes down to the perspective of the leadership team. At this point in time, Kodak, well, my my numbers here are a little bit later than that, but they essentially were having profits of about a billion dollars, almost $10 billion today. Polaroid was somewhere in the like 100 million mark. So way less profit. Mm-hmm. Much smaller company, not a huge threat at this point in time. Kodak also took the stance that what's good for Kodak is good for Kodak. 
we're making money by producing these parts. Instant photography, maybe it'll be big, maybe it won't, but we're definitely going to get some money. We'll take it. If they had different executives, this may have been kind of it for Polaroid. They may not have been able to meet the man. Maybe if it had fizzled out, it's kind of hard to say. But at this point in time, that's what Kodak was willing to do, and it worked out great. Right. They may not exactly know how to replicate the camera itself, but rather than getting zero dollars out of the sale of a Polaroid, they can share in the sales by at least being part of the supply chain. Absolutely. And they're not really losing anything by doing that. They already have the facilities. They're just using what they have. Mm. Yeah, it's really not a bad move. Polaroid is doing well. They're selling the cameras. Uh, The publication called The Financial World noted that they had excellent growth potential. In 1948, right when they launched the land camera, or right before, they had about $1.4 million in sales. Ten years later, they were about $8 million. And ten years after that, this is 1969, they were nearing $500 million, or getting close to that anyway. But despite their success, uh, Wall Street kept saying the stock is overvalued, don't buy it. Uh, and those that did became very wealthy. Just shows that at the end of the day, an opinion is just an opinion. You know, Wall Street wasn't a big fan of Polaroid, not not because of its product, but they felt like the leadership team was not solely focused on profits. Uh, And they felt that way because Polaroid was not solely focused on profits. Uh, (laughs) Land was an inventor and a visionary. He was more concerned with creating quality products than cutting down the cost of all the products just so they can have a higher profit margin. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of financial picture. Let's kind of talk about the camera itself. So the camera came out, and then a few months after that, they came out with another one called the Type 41. And this one had uh, black and white instead of that brownish look, and had much better contrast. They discovered a major flaw with this, however... There are a lot of things you want to get right with a camera. The most important thing is to produce a picture that lasts. That was not happening. These prints started to fade. And what they found was that there was a little bit of that goo that was on there, the development goo that remained of the photo. And it continued to develop the photo slowly until it turned white. Oh, that's a, pro- that's a problem. This is a problem. <laughs> yes. So to solve this problem, you might think that they had something nifty or clever because that's who Edwin Land is. That was not the case. They basically just took, they pulled out one of those steps from the more complex um, side of things. And they had a coating that had to be applied to every black and white print until 1970. And it had a sharp smell and it left hands kind of oily. But people were still able to take on this added step because it was still much easier than sending things off to a dark room. Mm-hmm. Since 1970, whether they were coded or not, the pictures were no less stable than regular conventional ones, but they had that reputation for not lasting. Right. Though so invalid. It's hard to, uh, hard to get rid of a perception once it's been ingrained. Yes. I mean, for, Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say Ford had that problem when there was, I think it was in the 80s, they were using recycled metal in their cars. And I even remember my parents saying they bought a couple and they rusted out because of the type of metal they were using. And so to this day, there are people 
Um, and up until recently, including like my parents who thought Ford, you don't want to buy it. It rusts out. Like that perception lasted a very, yeah, very long absolutely. time. Yeah. And the most famous thing that people do, maybe even still do, is they shake that Polaroid. And that was because when they put that film on, it lasts for about 15 minutes and they would shake it to dry it off. The shaking was completely pointless. It does not do anything. It does not dry any faster. And it actually can damage the picture. When Outcast, I remember from the last episode we briefly talked about, when he turned that practice into this refrain, you know, quote, you know, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Mm -hmm. Polaroid actually put out a press release saying, do not shake or wave the picture. It will damage it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go and talk about marketing. They created the land camera. That's 1948. We're going to kind of zoom forward here to 1954 is when they decide they want to hire a marketing firm and they hired the firm Doyle Dane Bernbach hopefully I said that correctly they were part of a revolution in advertising at this point they became very famous from a Levy's Rye Bread campaign which I will say in just a second uh, they also worked on the Volkswagen campaign turning it from an image of you know Nazi vehicles to you know cute little buggy, mm. uh, but the slogan that they came out with for Levy's Rye Bread, ready for it? Quote: You don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's. <laughs> I don't know if that would fly today. <laughs> Probably not. But what they did is they called it the Quality Campaign. As we spoke about, Wall Street wasn't a huge fan because of kind of that quality and the amount of money that they pumped into the cameras they didn't necessarily have to. But because mm -hmm. of that, they were able to use that, and they really did focus on that quality. So I'm going to just give you two slogans that they had for the Polaroid camera. The first one was, if you're not taking color pictures with the new Polaroid color pack, there's something left out of your life. It's a little long. <laughs> it is. But I see what they're going for. And it showed a girl and her dad. They're in Central Park. They're surrounded by balloons and a carriage. And just, you know, life is so vivid. You want to be able to capture that. Yeah. The next one is uh, one that I actually kind of sent you a picture. You saw in there that they're kind of like peeling back that picture. Mm -hmm. And the caption is, it's like opening a present. And that worked it's quite little, well. It's a little catchier. Yeah. I mean. Succinct. A little, yeah, more succinct. Yeah. And shortly after this, in 1957, Polaroid went public. Yeah, we get a nice little influx of cash with that. Let's talk about the culture. I said multiple times, this wasn't a typical Wall Street darling. And uh, for the moment, we'll set, take that as a positive. It was considered a great place to work during its heyday. The company had a lot of money. Their profit margins were about 60%, which was pretty awesome, which allowed Polaroid to set out the price competition. You know, they can kind of force companies nickel and dime. However, working with Land himself uh, could be great and exhausting. His employees that worked with him worked around shifts around him. He would he was a workaholic. He would just work and work. And so you would like the first shift would come in and work with him and then go home and the next shift would come in and continue to work with him. Yeah. There was a wow. stretch where he worked 18 straight days. 18 days in a row? Yep. How much he did he sleep? This, well, he yeah, and he wore the same clothes. 
I don't think he slept very much. I think he just slept in the, the lab. And he would have to be reminded to eat. Work was his life, and he loved it. Wow. That's like that, uh, what do you say, like the, the mad genius kind of. <laughs> very much so. He often made technical and management decisions based on what he thought was right as a humanist, as a scientist, rather than Wall Street and his investors, which pretty much just wanted money. I mean, I can't blame him for that. I feel like there's quite a few companies today that I think would be better off if they just focused a little bit less on shareholder profits. Oh, absolutely. That is a whole nother discussion. I have lots of thoughts, but I will, don't want to diverge from this. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. He had a department labeled miscellaneous research, had a nice big budget, and he there were some researchers there that spent most of their careers just in miscellaneous research. How do you put that on a resume? <laughs> I'm sure they just talk about the project. 15 they years in miscellaneous <laughs> research at <in> Polaroid. <laughs> just odds and ends. Another great thing about Polaroid is they hired a lot more women at this point in time than other companies. And they were very good about things like maternity leave, which companies now even aren't really great about it. So that's awesome. And the culture there tended to focus on people rather than just the bottom line. And a little tidbit of facts here. the Some of the buildings that they owned and they spent most of their time where they were where Alexander Graham Bell's offices were, where the first longest telephone call was received in 1876. Oh, interesting. Yeah, pretty cool to see kind of two great inventions mm -hmm. in, the, in the same area. So yeah. whoever made that telephone comparison, was it the New York Times made that New York telephone comparison? They were literally working out of the same building. <laughs> I didn't even get that. I like yeah. it. That's good. Um, Land had some interesting notions and I'm kind of just kind of going to read these down. One of them was totally great. Uh, he believed that everybody from Nobel candidates down to the people stuffing film into boxes should feel part of a seamless movement. He saw his employees as tulip bulbs in the cellar. Bring them out into the world, give them water and light, and an amazing number of them will come into flower. Uh, summarizing into take care of your employees. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what is... Um said nowadays by corporations as lip service, but isn't actually actioned. Yeah, it's amazing how taking care of your employees can actually lead you to having more productive employees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Imagine that. But I assume it didn't last forever then because we're talking about this company. Uh, but for now, it's lasting. Yes. It's, it's working out well. He also had an interesting dream. I think that's the best way I can quantify this statement here. His dream was to have a thousand small companies, each grossing $20 million, each spending 10% of that amount in research every year. That would contribute $20 billion to the national income, employ 2 million people, and change the national scene so that every individual feels like a full participant with the purpose and activity of the group. You said he was a humanist, right? Yeah. I can see that playing out yes, now in a lot so. of his decisions. Okay. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. He just, I th he just loved research. He loved solving problems. And Polaroid, instead of doing this for Polaroid to make money, I think he was simply using Polaroid and the money to just to continue his research. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, things change a little bit when you're an employer. They do. 
But he had this mentality even during, remember during World War II in the first episode, he didn't want to lay anybody off. You know, he felt that it was the company's prerogative and directive to continue to pay their employees and support them. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Almost like a paternal figure. The company is the paternal figure, you know, helping and supplying for its children. Yeah, it, it is a very different concept. Not bad by any means. And at this point in time, it's working completely fine. No, it just doesn't speak the language of, of Wall Street. <laughs> As you can see, they weren't really interested. In yeah. It right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Why Why do we want to invest in a company that's taking care of its employees? What do you mean you're going to cut your <laughs> – you're not going to cut your SG&A? All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So we have the land camera. And I would like to say between the land camera and the swinger, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, and the SX-70 even past that. There are many different iterations of these models. Many, many. I am only hitting the ones that I believe are kind of the most important generation of each one. Or in the same way in cars where you have, you know, an Accord, Honda Accord, but there's like six different models of a Honda Accord. Oh, I'm sure. just talking about kind of just the, just the Accord itself, just, just the main part uh, to keep things kind of simple. So the Land Camera has been out for a little while. The next big hit, and the land camera, as we said, was expensive, about $1,000 in today's money. Yes, ordinary people did buy it, but it really wasn't for the big masses. But that thing's changed in 1965 when the Swinger came out. The story goes that uh, there was a copywriter who watched Edwin Land walk into her office swinging the camera from his wrist. And so she decided that they should name the camera the Swinger. It was much, much cheaper. It was roughly $20 or $200 in today's money. It weighed only 21 ounces. It was extremely easy to use, and it was lightweight. And so it became very popular with everyone. And when I say it was easy to use, it really was. They really thought of the consumer. I'm going to give you an example here. The Swinger had a yes icon that appeared in the window when the exposure was correct. So it would give you the best picture. Nice. And a no, a capital no, if it wasn't. So you had to wait until you got the no, or I mean, I'm sorry, you had to wait until you got the yes and it would show no in the meantime? You wouldn't, you don't have to, but it would just say like, yes, this is going to be like the best picture quality that you're going to get. Like oh, before based, based you snap your, the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before oh, you that's snap cool. It. I like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Th those, those engineers, I felt like they were in tune with the general masses of people. Yeah, because if anything, you know, you think of the instant photos that we had from the... Uh, the disposable cameras and it was always a surprise if you, <laughs> how it came out right if only yes. they'd kept that yeah really uh the pack the film packs were fairly cheap about twenty dollars in today's money and the they produced wallet side pictures the land camera if you're thinking of the white boulder polaroid that you you know like you kind of see nowadays that was not what the land camera produced these were much larger the Swinger was producing wallet size ones, so smaller. And it was great, and it became very popular when viral, you know, to use a modern term, with young adults who wanted these pictures. However, as things that go viral, it also faded fairly quickly. And within five years, people started to realize, oh, okay, well, yes, I can take the picture, but the image quality isn't all that great. But it's okay. Polaroid had another camera on the way. We're just going to kind of put that in a little corner for a second. But what comes next? Color comes out. Remember, these things are still black and white. But color 
finally came out and it was invented by Howard Rogers. And I'm just going to read this little bit to show you how complicated this is. So I told you it was developed by Howard Rogers and the way that it worked in the polar color film was made possible by this molecule that was invented by him, which allowed dyes to migrate across the positive part of the film while coupling with the developer that processed the negative part of the film. So I should probably quickly explain the positive film is what you think of as a picture, the final product. The negative is the reverse of that, and that's how the picture is actually taken. So the film had three layers that were sensitive to blue, green, and red light, and exposed areas of those negatives became dark. The opposite color dye developed molecule lay beneath each of those layers, and when the chemistry was activated after the pod burst, those bigger molecules began to migrate towards the photo paper, and the exposed dark areas took up the developer, blocking the dyes and preventing them from reaching the image to the unexposed lighter areas that let dyes through. All of that just saying that it's very complicated. I just read something that explained how it was. I clearly don't understand it very well. It's very <laughs> complicated, and they were doing great things. This was very popular with amateur photographers. However, professional photographers felt that black and white was more honest and documentary, while color was kind of just for Hollywood and fakery. Very classic pushback from the professionals in the same way that doctors pushed back against the thermometer because they felt like if you're not good enough to assess your patient uh, without that device, then you're not good enough to be a doctor. I mean, just the classic pushback. Right. You mean it's different from how I've always done it before? Well, then it must be, it must be bad. (laughs) It must be worse. Yes. Yeah. I don't need that crutch. You know, I'm much, much better than that. Yeah, it's a it's not exactly analogous, but it's similar to um, kind of like you know I like vinyl myself, but there's people that are like ah you know the sound of vinyl is more honest you know the sound of vinyl is is richer and maybe I just don't have as tuned of an ear, but you know I like it, but <laughs> I I don't quite see exactly what they're going for. Right? I don't notice the difference. That's going to spur something. Somebody's going to say something about yeah, that. But, but that's okay. <laughs> The people that have that ear, if they can tell the difference, that's great. That's That's good. for me. As Polaroid was developing different technologies, they were a company of kind of independent teams rather than kind of all collaborating towards one central goal. Because of that, and there wasn't very much communication or collaboration between these teams, this did lead to the creation of many different technologies. The Polar Color Film, uh, the Automatic 100 camera, which is one that we're not going to talk about, Uh, as well as other things that didn't really work out for them, like photocopier technology. However, one of them that we still use to this day, one of his land's protégés, Stephen Benton, invented the rainbow hologram that is on credit cards. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I thought that's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. Now let's talk about the Polaroid logo. If you have been listening to this series and been imagining the classic rainbow, That is not what Polaroid looks like up until now. Up until 1960s, it was beige and red. Uh, Yeah, I'm thinking pretty pretty bland. Kind of reminiscent of those brown photos. After they went through kind of a little collaborative meeting, they decided to put some color into it. Now, if you're thinking the rainbows, you're getting closer. It's not quite there yet. They ended up using 
different colors in the film packaging to to denote different types of film as i sent you a picture you saw one was blue and there's just different colors and then in 1968 they finally started the the rainbow stripe packaging that you are kind of thinking of today i did notice here they they have a Polaroid exposure meter by General Electric Company for the Polaroid Highlander Land Camera, and it has the Scotch pattern in the background. <laughs> nice, I like that. Yes, and the Highlander Camera is the one that we're not talking about, but it came between the Land Camera and the Swinger. I just left it out just to kind of condense the sure, the sure. episode down a little bit. And one of the reasons they wanted to do these different colors was to stand out from the Kodak red and yellowish gold so at this kind of point in time let's just kind of look at the landscape and competitors for polaroid in the film traditional film market they have many competitors kodak canon nikon but that's not the industry that they're really in if you look at them in the instant photography business their competitors are no one (laughs) absolutely no one and the reason this is edwin land has and he died with 533 patents which is i think the second most or the third most behind thomas edison and one other person whose name is eluding me at the moment it would be almost impossible at this point in time to create another instant camera the patents that he had were so strong and no one else found another way to make an instant camera that they had no competitors, which is one of the reasons they are able to maintain such high profit margins. So they made it almost impossible to like reverse engineer the camera and make, make you know, yeah. Yeah, people could reverse engineer it. The problem was then they had a Polaroid camera, which they can't sell because it's illegal. Right. I mean, like, you know, they couldn't make a variation off of that reverse engineer, essentially. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That is actually one of Polaroid's strengths was patenting. Something you don't really think of when you think of a company's strengths. Uh, that is definitely one of them. And it's Except for the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> <laughs> that is a prime example for sure. Except their patents don't last nearly as long on their brand name drugs if my memory serves. I'd have to look that up. Polaroid is not resting on its laurels. They are continuing to move on. So the 1970s roll around, Polaroid is looking at what the next iteration of their camera is going to be. And they found it in the SX-70. This is a cool camera. This is the beginning of what you would think of as Polaroid. You take the picture, it automatically comes out. They required no manipulation. You didn't have to worry about the goo. And it would just develop very quickly right before your eyes, kind of. If you've ever seen a Polaroid, very much like that. There's no various steps, no more timing, no more peeling apart, no more print mounting, you know, no more print coding. This is the new system that would re-revolutionize photography forever. So let's talk about this SX-70 camera. This camera is, in a way, the pinnacle of what Land wanted. He envisioned a camera that was always with you, easy to use, and as ubiquitous as a pencil or eyeglasses. He hoped the camera would allow for effortless point-and-shoot photography without anything mechanical coming between the user and the image they wanted. Some of the sources I've read believe that this vision was actually the form of a smartphone. Uh, I think this 
camera really does kind of take on this vision, as you'll see here. There were some requirements that Land had for this camera, such as the ability to focus from an infinite distance down to 10 inches. The SX70 also had some unique features. For example, Land insisted the viewfinder should be unmarked so as to provide a completely natural view of subject. However, this caused a lot of frustration for many users who found it difficult to focus. And eventually, this was a few years later, they developed an autofocus camera, which used sonar to measure the distance to the photograph wow. subject. Yeah, pretty neat. He also insisted that the camera body should be covered in leather, even though this added to production costs and also had more woes coming from Wall Street. And it also caused a number of irregularities in the leather that kind of increased the number of factory rejects. That does get expensive. Uh, it's definitely something to keep in the back of your head. The development of this camera and the film was expensive. As you can imagine, the, everything I just kind of listed off, it is another revolutionary idea. It was estimated to cost between $250 to $750 million. A lot of these components were very technologically demanding. And this camera actually had a problem where the battery kept dying. So they ended up having a little bit of charge in every film pack that you used so that it would last as long as that film pack. The camera never had any issues. Very clever. Hmm. And then every SX-70 photo contained 13 layers of chemistry with this thin plastic sheet atop the image that needed to be flexible, but not crumpled. But this also meant you didn't have to peel anything. It was all just there and mm -hmm. worked very effortlessly. As you can imagine, this camera was a huge success. Its iconic white frame became synonymous with instant photography and what most people, including myself, think of when you think of a Polaroid. This camera required the construction of several factories, very large ones. The SX-70 camera represented a major step forward in the field of photography. It provided people with the ability to take and view the photographs truly instantly. Now, when I just mentioned they produced, or not produced, they created a few factories, I would keep that little nugget of knowledge, just kind of tuck it away when we start talking about them uh, falling apart before they declare bankruptcy. That'll mm -hmm. come back. I got to say too, before you go on, that this, we talked about it before the show, but the, this camera is sleek. It is cool. Yes. yes it, I sent you a picture. Yeah. He sent me a picture and it collapses into, um, uh, essentially as you said, it looks like either a cigarette case or it's like a Zippo um, lighter. I mean, bigger, of course, but it is really cool. It just collapses in on itself and it's this thin, um, like I think it's stainless steel looking covered in leather, like a beige leather. It is really cool. It is a very high-end product. The If you remember, the land camera took a minute for one picture. The SX-70 could take them, could take many, many pictures and develop them quickly. They would be fully developed within 10 minutes without any chemical residue. So this is how, just how he delivered the camera. He went out on the stage. He took out the folded SX-70 from a suit coat pocket because, as you just described, it kind of looks like a big cigarette case. So he could just pull it right out. And in 10 seconds, he took five pictures. Stunned everybody. Even the land camera, which was remarkable, he took a picture and then sat there for a minute. So he mm -hmm. went from that to taking five pictures in a matter of seconds and then having them develop. They, the camera went on sale in 1972. 
and it went nationally uh, the year after that. It cost $180, which was $1,166, and the film packs were about $45 each. And they sold 700000 in a year. They were doing quite well. <laughs> the camera was selling out so well that retailers were charging more than $300 per camera, almost a, like a 70% increase. Wall Street was not happy with the SX-70 for whatever reason. They did not believe that Polaroid stock was an investment vehicle. And there were reasons for this. It is an amazing camera. But as we said, it had battery problems, which they did end up solving, as I told you, with that those film packs. But the film had some flaws in it, and there were camera shortages. However, Polaroid managed to stay afloat. During this time, Lane also worked on improving the film chemistry and sonar autofocus system, and he ended up creating a collaboration with a gentleman named Bill McCune. Uh, he was the company's quality control expert, and this turned out to be a rather tense partnership because they're both very strong individuals, but it ended up being very effective. Land also relented and made a budget version of the SX-70 with cheaper plastics and vinyl in place of that leather and, you said, like the nice kind of steely look. And then they created something called the Model 1000 One-Step, and they it ended up using the SX-70 film, and it became the best-selling camera of the 1977 Christmas shopping season. A bit in there for you. Hmm. It's a Polaroid. They had... A lot of ups. They had a really, really sharp downturn in 1974, and then things kind of started perking back up. It's time to look on to the next project. This is called Polavision. This project was started in the 1940s. It was a system developing Project Home movies using a self-contained cassette. Very cool. Very innovative. Remember, they started this in 1940. Most of their energy was spent on the world of instant photography and film, but this was always in the works. When the land camera came out, the Highland, the Swinger, and the SX-70, the Polavision is still in the works. Land's vision was to have people document their daily lives with it and kind of and see their home movies. There were some concerns at this time that the Polavision might not be successful, and this is because we're now in the 60s. 20 years later. Technology is changing. There are other technologies on the landscape. However, despite some concerns, they moved forward. When I say they, I mean Land, because Land was the heart and soul of this company, and he wanted the project to move forward. The project moved forward. However, Polavision doesn't have the same appeal as this in photography. One of the issues is that it does not draw people together, and the viewing was tethered to a player, unlike a picture which could just be passed around, shared, or taken anywhere. So what is the problem with the Polavision? If the Polavision was launched in the 40s, that would be incredible. If it was launched in the 50s, very cool. But it was launched in the mid-60s. And the problem with a really neat, innovative product launch, such as the LAN camera, is if you are the first to do it, it can be incredible. However... If you're developing something and another company is developing something and you release them in similar time frames and the other one happens to be better than yours, your <laughs> release is not going to go very well. Right. There was another company, you may have heard it, called Sony. They developed the Betamax, hmm. 
which yep. is yep yes okay here are some of the issues the pole vision could record for three minutes the betamax could record for two hours <laughs> pretty clear winner <laughs> yes they actually had a, um, a consultant and friend come out to look at the Polavision. And after the demonstration, uh, he said, well, you can sell 50000 of anything, but you're too late to the market. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. And oh. it was too late. And they felt and Land felt that it was too late to back down. They spent $500 million, uh, roughly, on creating this, and they were going to launch it. And they expected to sell about 200,000 units, and they sold 60,000. That's a lot more, though, than... I mean, just considering the performance gap, that's still way more than I even would have thought yes, they could they have sold. spent quite a bit on marketing for this as well. They really did push it. I wonder, is there a, is there a resurgence of these nowadays that people are seeking them out? Not that I'm aware of. They ended up not doing that great, and they discontinued it. Uh, so it was released in 1965, and they discontinued it in 1979. Now, there is another company. I was thinking, what's another modern example of this? And I think a great example is the iPad. The iPad came out in 2010. Revolutionary, really cool, neat. You know that these development times are happening in the exact same time frame. The iPad was released in 2010, and in 2012, Nintendo came out with the Nintendo Wii U. If it was released in 2009, it would have been incredible, innovative technology in which you have a pad with a you know little controls on it. Well, compared to the iPad that came out two years before, it seems cheaper and less innovative. It did not sell nearly as well as it could have if it was released a few years earlier. If the Polavision was released before the Betamax, I think it would have sold much, much better. Do you think that was a just a weakness of diverting so much of their time and attention to the photograph? I mean, I'm wondering how long, because I don't know, I, I'm wondering how long Sony was developing, you know, Betamax. I don't know. I didn't look into the Sony aspect. But I think that part of the issue could have been that the teams didn't communicate very well. They may not have been doing research on what else was coming out. Uh, they may not have had the, te the technology figured out before then. It's not necessarily that they were slacking mm -hmm. in any way. They just, this is just how long it took to make it. Yeah. And you weren't, to my knowledge, you were not able to erase or edit once the video had been created, like you could with cassettes. Gotcha. Pretty much all around a subpar product compared to the Betamax. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we ended on a sour note for Polaroid. The Polavision was a big loss for Polaroid, but the instant film market was continuing to boom. 1976 rolled around. Let's take a quick look at them. They have a revenue of $112 million, and 62.6 .6 million of that is profit. Not too bad. And I choose the year 1976 because... This is when there is a second problem for Polaroid. Now, I know I briefly jumped to the future to 1979 when they discontinued the Polavision, uh, but that is a very small part of the story. The main part of the story is what happens in 1976, and that is Kodak, who realized that they would lose out on potentially billions of dollars specifically 
they Kodak believed they would lose six billion dollars in lost sales to the SX70. And in 1976, the Bear in Rochester, New York, woke up and released their instant camera. Mm. The one we're talking, take it to, take it to Wegmans or Rite Aid <laughs> and get the film developed, right? <laughs> no, no, this is the same. This is an instant camera. Oh, okay. I'm jumping ahead too far. You're jumping out to the yeah. That, wait, we will wait, talk okay. about that. I didn't realize how. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And this brings the two companies into court for a battle that lasts 14 years. It's a long time. And we will end on that and start discussing that in the next episode. All right. All right. Hey, everybody. Matt here. Uh, That's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, feel free to enjoy. Bring it out to the discussion. The Polaroid strength comes from its inventor. Do you think that Polaroid will continue to produce as land is going to exit the stage here in a little bit? Um, I mean, I feel like part of the answer is the fact that we're covering this company in the first place, right? But, (laughs) so it's a little bit, I guess a little bit of cheating, but, um, you know, I'm going to say no, and not just because of what I just said, but because... There have been many times I've seen companies that they start out with a vision and the person carrying that torch is the original founder, right? Or a a group of founders. And as Wall Street gets involved, as new leadership comes into play, uh, that vision starts to disappear. Um, And I think priorities are, are changed and lost. Uh, and, you know, uh, eventually leads to what I assume we'll be covering is is their eventual bankruptcy. Um, you know, a lot of there's a lot of talk online and, and things like that about, uh, you know, you just got to envision it. You got to think about it. Right. You know, all these like kind of woo woo uh, business um, motivational type of things. But. Uh, there is something to be said for understanding why why you're doing something or what your original motivation was and the culture and the um, uh, the sort of tone that you set for your company, right? Because a lot of times you'll see even within companies, people will be working on a project. And uh, as David Allen has said, sometimes you've got to stop and say, okay, what are we doing? And then when you establish what are we doing, you have to step back again and be like, why are we even doing this in the first place? Because sometimes you realize nobody's ever established why you should be doing what you're doing, right? So that is that is the reason for a vision in general, as long as you act upon it, because that is the weakness of doing a lot of visioning is that some people like to do that and think that that's the work itself, and it's not. But um, I'm getting a little off tangent, but what I'm trying to say with this is that, you know, as you begin to change leaders um, and time progresses, sometimes those original visions are lost or people come up with their own visions of what they want 
for the company or what's important in the priorities. And those things can be the eventual demise of that company. Oh, yes. There are going to be definitely different ideas that pop up, as you'll see. Let's talk about another thing that made Polaroid unique was there, as we briefly kind of talked about in the middle of the narrative, Polaroid and its leadership really does care about its employees. They have a very different perspective on culture. What do you think, comparing and contrasting that to kind of modern business theory and how they uh, teach kind of that today? Oh, this is a <laughs> this this is a big topic. Uh, but I would say that tying it back to what I just said, actually, about vision. He he was acting from a set of principles that he believed, you know, for the, the way in which a company should be run, right, and how it should treat its employees. And those principles transferred into actions. But I think what I've seen too much of today is many companies that speak as though those things are important to them, but they don't actually have the principles behind them to back that up. And part of that is just because corporations are so large, the bureaucracy can make it hard for people to internalize principles on their own. Um, So, you know, you might receive a corporate communication saying, you know, we're here for you and uh, we care for our employees and this and that, right? But behind that is a large group of people who may or may not internalize those principles. Of course, again, there is leadership, right? There is HR leadership. There's leadership in the company that should hopefully be um, trickling those things down. But he made it actionable in a way in which it even threatened profits. Like you said, during World War II, right? That's why Wall Street was not a big fan of him. I don't necessarily see today many companies that will go as far as to threaten their profits to protect their workers. They will do everything up until that point, and then that's they stop. when you know that Polaroid is doing it right. When Wall Street doesn't like it, that's when you can say they're probably treating their employees pretty well. <laughs> I'm sure at some point we're going to get some 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 Wall Street listeners who won't take kindly to this. But hey, you know, uh, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> They have their own priorities, and I'm they not do. saying that's right or wrong. But and to your point on leadership, like we have talked about, you know, off air, it all starts with the top, and you need to instill these values from the top down to every level. Because if you work in a department of a very large organization with very poor leadership, just with that department, those employees are going to have a very different perspective of the company than what their leaders may instill. Another thing that I like to say semi-jokingly is, you know, talk is cheap. You know, use it as often as possible. <laughs> you can talk your game all you want, but you got to rubber meets the road somewhere. Well, it's true. I mean, uh, even if you were to take it as a very simple analogy, right, about parenting, you know, you can say a lot of stuff, but if you never back up your word, I mean, what does it mean to your child, right? And, uh, you know, similarly... You can hear a lot of nice things from leadership, but the more that isn't backed up by action, the the more your employees don't trust that you'll do what you say. Um, and it doesn't take too many times to violate that trust. So that's why it's important to, to carry it out. 
And again, I know like there's a lot of competing priorities nowadays in modern businesses. And a lot of people would say, well, it's complex. And we have a lot of people who are stakeholders and invested, but still, I mean, he was managing how many employees did you say? I don't, I don't know if I remember, but you know. So, well, I, I didn't say here, uh, at one point in time, about halfway through what we were talking about, I think he was somewhere like 2,500. I think their height they had somewhere close to 20,000. Okay. I mean, big enough, right? But he still was able to make the executive decision, I'm going to protect my employees, even if it hurts mm-hmm. the bottom line. I'm even going to hire women and treat them well and give them eternity leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Something they still struggle to do today. Right. <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of Wall Street. Now, on the topic of quality, I kind of I, – I probably should take a step back from one of the things I said. Wall Street actually doesn't have any issue with quality. Uh, they are perfectly fine with it because in a perfect world, uh, the quality of the product should be reflected in the price. And so there's real no conflict there. I think part of the issue is that they were – increasing the quality of the product but not really increasing uh, the price and they were the ones taking kind Mm. of the hit on that to keep it within a certain price point yeah it's hard i mean if you've established a certain price point for your product um and then you're going to continue to increase the quality and increase the price i mean you're going to shift i think the the people that you know your, your consumer group but there was one thing i was curious about with this is i'll draw an example it's basically the lost leader um, concept, right? So Harbor Freight, for instance, uh, sells, I forgot the name of it, but they sell a welder, a welding machine. And they actually lose money on that welding machine. It's actually a pretty good quality machine. And they lose money on it because they invest more in making sure that it's good. But where they make up for it is selling the consumables for it. All of the things that you need to do welding, um, you know, your, um, filler metals, your, um, you know, uh, oh, I'm losing the names now, but essentially everything that you use in welding that gets used up, you have to buy more and more of, right? So that's how they make their money. Um, and yeah, that's the f- yeah so I was going to ask, like, is the cost of this camera, because Kodak was concerned, is the cost of this camera so much that even the sale of the film itself will not make up for it? I'm going to two answers for you the first is the model you're talking about is the razor blade model the the gillette model right they like to say right you sell the razor at cost or close to it which part of me doesn't believe they do that anymore but and then they they sell the 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 razors and they have a very high profit margin polaroid is making money they actually have a very high profit margin on the film and they are making money on the cameras. There's nothing that's really a lost leader. I just don't think they're very, making very much on the cameras themselves. Mm-hmm. Most of their money is coming from the film. This is going to also be a burden. And I believe uh, I might get the exact term wrong, but basically it's like the success bias. Like we are so successful in this way. It's really hard to pivot off of success when change is happening. Mm-hmm. Something is coming called the, the digital camera? Well, Kodak didn't see that coming either. <laughs> well, they did, but then they were like, yeah, who wants this? Yeah. No one's going to want to look at it on screens. Yeah. The Polavision is often cited as what gets Edwin Land 
like fired from you know and like puts him in like he's done after the polar vision i think that's a very oversimplified view and this is one of the great things about having your own podcast and doing research i could disagree with sources edwin land was the company he had the board of directors in his pocket and he owned like i forget it was seven or nine percent of the company for one person that's a significant amount uh nobody's going to tell him what to do okay now he is very much only used to success seeing a failure i'm sure and i know was a very big blow to him but he is not an individual that gives up. I do not believe that Pola Vision is what was uh, his downfall per se. Uh, he also was kind of getting older at this point in time anyway, and then this lawsuit that kind of happens. Uh, however, uh, for the company itself, you know, the Pola Vision was a failure. Definitely, it was funds they could have used elsewhere. However, if it was successful, we would be sitting here saying, wow, that was such a great thing, and it's so good they spent all that money on mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I might have said this in the previous episode at one point, but the, they say that the best time to change is while things are going well, you know, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. and a lot of companies miss that. And I think it's hard, too, because you don't always you, you might also accept that um, as a fact, but you may not know how to change or what to what to change toward or what to move toward. That's its own battle as well. Right. That's that's why every company ever now, you know, the big hot topic word in the business world is finding transformative leaders, right? You want to hire people that are able to see into the future and move the company in the direction it needs to go. The problem is that everybody has a different view of what that should be. And, you know, it's some people know and some people don't. The P people that guess and they get it right, they're visionaries and the people that don't, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But really, at the end of the day, everybody kind of is... I mean, the best you can have is an educated uh, guess because you just don't know what the future the future is going to hold, and that will come into play with Polaroid as well and Kodak when they eventually get right <laughs> uh, for us. Kodak wasn't too far behind. Yes, but Kodak is definitely looming large in our story, and they're going to come into the full picture. They are scared, and they are going to take their shot at Polaroid. And um, not spoiling anything here because, you know, it's all done. But Polaroid wins the court case. But it is definitely a Pyrrhic victory. You know, many more victories like that and they'll go out of business. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting episode. I'm looking forward to it. Any other thoughts or comments about Polaroid? Mm, I don't think so. I don't know if I said it last time, but I do find it interesting that it's uh, even though it's not the same Polaroid that it's making a comeback again. Yes, that we will touch on that at the end as well. we'll yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's got its own interesting story. But for now, this Polaroid, it is doing well. It's had its first real setback, but it, it, it did not knock them out. It is a stumbling block along the way. Some might say it's one of the reasons they went under. I would not say that. There are lots of companies that have blunders that are still around today. It's It's okay. Uh, it didn't help them, uh, but I would not say it was uh, necessarily a nail in their coffin by any means. Mm. But it is often cited, and you could, if you want to, draw like a nice linear line of, you know, where did the fall of Polaroid kind of start? You could kind of point to this as one of the first 
things. Hmm. So we'll uh, we'll find out as the story evolves. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we look forward to you guys listening in next time. All right. See you then.